0: Good morning and welcome to Kobo Banker Commercial's first kickoff Kobo Banker Commercial Chatter. In these sessions, which we'll post virtually during the year, we uh, welcome a deeper discussion to different aspects of commercial real estate. Today, we're going to talk deeply into the sector of multifamily housing. I'm Dan Spiegel, Managing Director of Cobalt Banker Commercial. I represent over uh, 2,600 commercial professionals in the United States. We're in 37 countries. And about 21% of our business in the U.S. is for multifamily or apartment sales. So it's a a segment that's very important to us, uh, as well as to many investors, both private investors and institutional across the U.S. We're happy to be here today and we look forward to speaking with you and answering your questions. We're going to speak one on one with Dan McGue. Dan McGue is our top multifamily professional at Cobalt Banker Commercial. He's based out in San Francisco, he's a true legend. He's been in the industry many, many years and has sold uh, well over 14,000 multifamily units. Um, So we're gonna introduce Dan in just a moment. And then during today, we'll have a conversation about the trends in multifamily, what's going on, what to anticipate, uh, both as we look back towards uh, the historic trends in multifamily and we look forward to our post-pandemic era in commercial real estate in the multifamily sector. So without further ado, I'm gonna introduce Dan. And he'll make a few comments about himself. Thank you for joining.
1: Good morning and uh, thanks Dan for the um, welcome. I'm looking forward to discussing all things multifamily with you today. Um, As Dan said, I'm Dan McHugh, a a commercial broker with Cobalt Banker and I work out of the San Francisco Pacific Heights office. I am a specialist in multifamily sales. I market uh negotiate and close uh, multifamily pro- properties primarily. 90% approximately of my transactions are multifamily and 90% of those are in San Francisco. Um, I have over my career closed a uh, sales volume in excess of 2.7 billion dollars. And annually I average about uh, 200 million dollars in sale both of which uh, no other individual multifamily broker in San Francisco has done. Uh, back to you, Dan.
0: Thanks very much. Appreciate that. You are, as I said, you're a true legend in the multifamily space. And while Dan is based in San Francisco and most of his experiences in the city and the surrounding suburbs, the lessons that we can learn from the Bay Area are emblematic of what's going on across the country today. So during our conversation, uh, please you know, think about the trends in your market that Dan's talking about that he notices in Northern California. And if you have any questions, please feel free to type them into the chat. Uh, just make sure to identify yourself by name, uh, publication, and location, because it comes through otherwise is anonymous. We want to make sure we identify you. So feel free to type the messages into the chat, and, um, and we'll uh, answer them later in today's program. So... So let's start off. Let's start off first with a little quick definition about multifamily. So, you know, one thing I was thinking about recently as we come out of this pandemic is that you know we can all work from home as we are doing right now, but we can't exactly live from work, right? So we still need a place to live. And there's a lot of chatter today about the single-family home market and how tight it is. Um, and the multifamily market addresses a lot of housing needs for people and is a you know I'll say tried and true investment class for investors of all different sorts. Uh, Multifamily starts at four units and up and goes all the way to the high-rise buildings you see in many downtown uh, skylines. Uh, But interesting, I just just came across a stat the other day from um, National multi-housing council that over 90% of multifamily is actually 24 units or less. So interesting, you know, it's a specialty of Dan in San Francisco, I think it's probably very typical of buildings you see throughout the city. Um, But it just tells you there's a lot of multifamily in America. Uh, and it's an investment class, as I said, that's that's of uh, of interest to many, many people. Over sixty percent of people who own multifamily are private investors. So a lot, of, a lot of the trends we talk about the high rise and the fancy buildings, a lot of what uh, is a transacted and important for people's portfolio is the uh, is the kind of neighborhood multifamily market. Anyway, so that just sets a little bit of context. Um, so we're going to start out. You know, Dan, I'd like you to, just to think about you know, reflect back to the pre-pandemic days, then let's say the during pandemic era, and now what you see coming out of it. Why don't you just take a take us through what your experience has been with your investor clients uh, and your transactions, um, you know, starting almost a little over a year ago and then through where we are today.
1: Sure. So pre-pandemic, so that would be uh, mainly early 2020, 2019 and 2018. Uh, we had a very strong economy in a very strong market in San Francisco. And uh, I would say that um, uh, buildings were, that were for sale was set, sell readily. Um, if we listed a property and put it out on the market, uh, generally we'd have multiple offers. Um, cap rates were in the three low threes to high three ranges, uh, which is typical of San Francisco and um prices per foot were on the average high 600s to 700 sometimes even $800 a foot um prices per unit were 500 and more um the the rental market similarly was pre- very strong in San Francisco we had um uh rents that average one bedroom apartment would rent at that time for close to $3,500 in San Francisco. Uh, two bedrooms were closer to 4,000, three bedrooms were up about 5,000. Studios would rent for close to 2,500. So then when the pandemic hit, well, firstly, everything just stopped, everything halted. You know, we were all uh, sheltering in place, locked in our homes, Um, nobody was really allowed to go out to conduct any business. And so nobody knew what was going to happen. But, um, in the beginning, uh, like after every crisis, there was a halt anyway because, you know, you have, uh, you have a crisis and everybody is wondering both on the selling side and the buying side where the market is going. Nobody, uh, I would say in March, April, in May was confident and still today is is completely confident about where the market was going and is going. Um, Buyers were concerned that if they bought, that they would be paying too much, that the market would go down and they had no idea how far down it would go. I mean, you you literally were locking people out of work. Um, People were staying at home Um, in general, uh, people in their office positions, were either terminated, um, furloughed, or told to work from home. Um, and then all, of course, the restaurants, the, the movie theaters, the bars, all the people that worked there were basically laid off because none of those were open. So there was a large population that was unemployed. This created a huge vacancy in San Francisco. Um, unlike the rest of the country, where I understand that multifamily later flourished because people were leaving places like our city and going to the outlying areas, the suburbs, and such. So what happens is, uh, in San Francisco, you had about 20 to 30 percent vacancy in most buildings, sometimes even higher. Uh, you uh, and when you could rent apartments, um, you literally would rent them for twenty to twenty five percent lower than you could the year before. So buyers were extremely cautious. Many buyers just told me they weren't in the market because they didn't know where it was going. In fact, almost all the buyers. And the sellers didn't want to sell for the same reason as is, is that they thought, well, this was a temporary thing, they hoped, and that if they did sell in that market, that they would be taking a hit that maybe it was unnecessary and that would correct you know, that the market would correct itself. Uh, in not in the not too distant future. But as time goes on, people go back to to business. And so what happens is is, uh, for example, sellers who need to move on uh, for whatever reason, they'll you know the the market is, what the market is, is their attitude at some point. Um, they had plans to trade into get out of apartments and managing uh, multi-residential tenants and rent control in San Francisco. And going into single tenant triple nets. Those people made the decision to move on, some of them. Uh, some people had to sell to uh get a hold of some cash for estate taxes or get a hold of some cash for alternative investments that were actually making money um, because the cash flow is extremely low at this point on San Francisco properties. Buyers on the other side of the coin slowly and still are slowly coming back into the market and their their spirit was well this may be one of those times this may be one of those opportunities that we won't see again so if we're not in there buying or at least trying to buy at what we perceive are great deals then um, we will have missed that opportunity still not having much of an idea where values exactly were and we're not going this created a bit of a gap because the sellers even though they decided to move ahead and sell in this market that they knew was down were still trying to get their 2019 prices at first. And buyers, um, of course, didn't trust where the numbers were today because every week in their own buildings, they would get uh, notices to vacate from several more tenants. And so it was an ongoing thing and they had no idea where this was headed and was, was there any bottom to you know uh, losing tenants the loss of rents the reduction of rents and therefore the value of the investment so they shop low so for a while you have that gap that exists between sellers and buyers um, but as always happens that gap gets narrowed and transactions happen when the seller is finally knowing that if they want to move on they're going to have to meet where the market is and buyers Knowing that, okay, this is an opportunity and I don't want to lose it to somebody else. So I will pay maybe more than I thought I was going to pay. And we started transacting business. And I would say that started in June and July. And, um, the market in 2020, I would say there were a lot of transactions that came, uh, from 20, 2019 that still closed. Um, where we're real, really seeing the effects on values is the market in 2021. What we're seeing is, 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 so again, back to those prices per foot. Um, now we're seeing four to $500 a foot as opposed to six, seven, and $800 a foot. We're seeing, depending on the neighborhoods, we're seeing, um, prices per unit now in the 300s, in the 400s, as opposed to the five and the 600s and you know we're we're seeing cap rates at fours and fives as opposed to low threes and high
0: threes interesting wow there's a lot of trends you just touched on there i'm gonna i want to ask you a little deeper on a couple things um well let's talk about both geography and demand side so if we look at the demand side do we see a couple things i'm going to ask you so one is you know, as rents drop, there can be some countervailing trends, right? So it, it could be San Francisco, New York, Chicago, where I am, or Seattle. You know, that may be an attractive to people who couldn't previously afford or thought they couldn't afford to live in a high-cost city. Now could be, that could increase demand. Um, alternatively, um, you know, people might decide, as I said, on the housing market, housing's tight. Maybe they sold their house for a great price, but then they rent. So do you see, are there any signs that demand is picking up that would be sort of an optimistic sign for investors to say, "Hey, you know, maybe twenty percent vacant now, but there's some countervailing winds or trends that might help the marketplace."
1: Sure, Dan. So when um, when some buyers came back into the market, they believed that this, in fact, was what was going to happen. What you're talking about, hard to imagine because, as I say, every week, note they're they're receiving notices on properties you know, on units that people were leaving. In fact, 85,000 people left San Francisco. Most of those were tenants and they left for um, cheaper housing and uh, less dense housing. So they, they moved to cheaper apartments in outlying areas in the suburbs, different states, different smaller cities, or back to their parents' home. Um, but what has happened and, and what, what, we or some people believe is at some point then when this market turns, buyer or tenants are going to realize that, hey, rents in San Francisco are really low. And we saw some of that early on where the tenants that didn't leave were actually leaving one apartment building for another, bettering their situation either in higher quality housing at the same or less price, or just getting a much better deal from a different landlord. So landlords were kind of stealing tenants from each other. But what we've noticed recently is a couple of things. We have people coming back into the city that left. Um, they realize that uh, when we get the vac- you know, the vaccine comes and um, helps us get through this thing and people start going back to work, um, it's not going to be so fun living in Sacramento for example or you know in the outlying suburbs there you know when the uh, city which is opening now you know you get you, you don't have the bars the clubs the you know um, the athletic events you know the, the the baseball the basketball the football all these things that that um, that young people enjoy and socialize with so they're realizing that life out there isn't so great for them at that, this stage in their life. So they're coming back um, in anticipation of all the, uh, all things reopening. And also that they can get rents at 25 to maybe even 30% cheaper than what they were paying when they left. The other thing we're noticing, and many of the tenants now that are coming to look at apartments it are tenants who have never lived in the city, have wanted to live in the city, but couldn't afford it before. But now they're looking at the cost of housing in the city, which is the same, similar, or maybe even less to where they're living now. And they're saying, gee, when the city comes back alive, I'm going to get the city and all of its amenities at locked in lower rents because, you know, there's rent control in the city, too, after all. And what is happening is we have noticed not only a pickup in uh, prospective tenants looking at units you know, showings of apartments, but we're actually renting apartments. We're seeing a lot of that. And um, rents haven't gone back up. You know, they're still at that level, you know, where we, I think maybe we bottomed out and I think we'll stay at this bottom for a while until buildings start filling up. But it sure seems like activity has picked up quite a bit. And I'm, I'm hearing this from properties we own. I'm hearing it from all of my clients and I'm hearing it from other people in the city that their, um, that their uh, renting activity has picked up quite a bit.
0: That's great news, great news for multifamily investors for sure. And I'm gonna suspect that those trends are probably pretty common across cities in America, right? Where you had a high, um, high downtown concentration workforce, be it Seattle, or as I said, Chicago, Miami, and so forth that you'll, you know, people aren't going to be thrilled necessarily. Some people at least that, you know, living, as you said, in Sacramento or Idaho or wherever is for them for life. It was a great opportunity and maybe they're ready to come back. Um, so let's dive a little bit deeper into that thought for a second. Are people looking for a larger units today because of the work from home environment where, you know, they might've run into one bedroom and now they need a two bedroom or looking for a little you know corner space to work from? And B, are they looking for some, are, are looking for and our owners putting in some amenities that uh, just make their properties more competitive in the COVID environment? So both size and amenities, what are your thoughts?
1: So as we were rolling into the uh, pandemic,
0: um,
1: the people who stayed and were switching from building to building, they were looking for certain amenities, yard space, um, Larger apartments at cheaper rates where they could spread out and not even get necessarily close to their roommates, also have separate work workspaces, um, those sorts of things. Um, what's happening now is people are realizing that there's not a lot of buildings, at least the existing um, buildings, and even new buildings, that they where they really, really have usable, a lot of it outdoor space if you're going to live in an apartment in the city. But they do look for apartments that are located in quality locations and near outdoor spaces. So something near Alamo Square Park, something near Lafayette Park, near the Presidio, near the Marina Green, Um, all popular areas again and now because they have open spaces. Uh, The other thing is, is that, yes, people are looking for uh, larger apartments. Rents are cheaper so they can afford the bigger space and they can work from home right there um, in their space. And so what we've also heard is that uh, like Amazon or uh, Google announced that they are uh, shooting for, I think uh, late late summer where their employees will be coming back to the office. So They're gonna mandate that they're an in-office uh, company and um, maybe it's two or three days a week. But even two or three days a week, Probably locks those employees into living in the city, particularly when it's cheaper or as cheap as where or as affordable as to where they're living now when they left the city. So, um, that's bringing people back. Um, but I would say the larger apartments, um, I think that, um, again, outdoor space, roof decks, um, you know, uh, gymnasiums, which in the apartment buildings can't really be used, uh, you know, funny little things like dog washing stations. Um, those are pretty popular amongst young people now. Yeah. Most young people seem to have a dog um, or two. And uh, bike storage. You know, another people are uh, riding bicycles more and more throughout the city. And even if they're the, the new electric bikes, but they are on bicycles. And so they need a place to store their bikes. So those are the kinds of things. Um, in newer buildings, you may see um, you know, in new construction buildings, you may see things like, you know, touchless locks and touchless uh, elevator operations. Right. Um, certainly, I would think that, you know, buildings can be outfitted with hand sanitizers throughout the common areas. Um, something that I find myself looking for, and I know that we put into buildings that we own.
0: Yeah, lots of interesting trends there. I like the the comment about the dog washing. I mean, there is a puppy pandemic or a puppy explosion going along with the pandemic, at least in my neighborhood. So I, I can appreciate that. And biking, it also makes sense. I mean, cycling is a COVID safe. You know, in other words, you're not in a, in a closed space so where uh, in climates where it's uh, acceptable. I know I was out walking our dog this morning and I see all kinds of people on bikes. It's a great sign of spring. But it's also, to your point, you got to have a place to store that and it's you know, probably providing that a more attractive. Um, let's think about a little bit about geography for a second. So we talked about amenities and what's attracting and trends. And actually, I just wrote a, a short little blog piece that I've uh, put on our CBC blog about you know what's attracting tenants. But uh, we've also been looking into just geographic trends, where, where investors are going as well as renters. Uh, we know uh, from moving stats from like united van lines and whatnot people are moving out of cities right at least in the short term we don't know how long term that'll be but do you see investor preferences i mean you obviously you know we have our urban cores across america where there's for a certain type of lifestyle very desirable uh place to live but do you see investors shifting their focus away from the the uh, the central urban core to suburban or uh ex-urban type areas where they think there's a probably a better upside, at least in the near term?
1: Sure, Dan, so even from personal experience, so last year during the pandemic, I sold quite a few buildings here in the city and every building that I sold, really it was like real estate decades ago where you had one buyer for one seller and you negotiated uh, you know, one-on-one and it would take several rounds of negotiation. Whereas before, like I said earlier, you would have multiple offers on those properties. But what happened is when the pandemic began, what I not only no- noticed, but what I heard from investors were, we're not buyers of San Francisco real estate anymore. We will start buying if we haven't already, or we will concentrate our efforts at other areas in the states or even different states where there are less you know, uh, dense accommodations, where you have you know, six and a half acres for um, for example, the 116 units, which is where I was going, that I sold up in Santa Rosa this last year for $27 million, I had, totally different than the San Francisco experience, I had six offers, six buyers bidding for that property on the offer day. And we went several rounds of, of best and finals to end up with a buyer um, at a very attractive price to the seller. But the buyer was happy because... You no, know, he got a property that was, um, again, um, a, a good campus, spread out over six and a half acres uh, property in a great location in Santa Rosa. Nothing like what you would find in San Francisco. So also all the people that were interested in buying that property came back to me and said, do you have more? We're looking for more, not only in Santa Rosa, but in other suburban areas. It can even be out of state. It can be in the valley, but that's what we're looking for. Um, I've had a lot more of that request than I have had for uh, San Francisco buildings. The San Francisco buildings that I'm selling are basically to several buyers. Their buyers have come back into the market, but they are a handful of, of them. And it's not a lot of buyers, but it's extremely sophisticated, well-funded buyers that are buying in San Francisco but it creates a market that is a little bit sparser on the buyer side and also even on the seller side, because I say nobody wants to sell in this market unless they have a reason, a real reason to go somewhere.
0: Interesting. So again, a lot of interesting geographic trends going on today. Uh, I know we're, as I said, we're working on a thought leadership piece just to, to, to outline whether the migration of people from cities... You know, albeit short term or long term, it will actually impact commercial real estate of all types, multifamily, retail, and so forth. So, I guess stay tuned for that. Uh, we have just a, a couple minutes left. Um, I guess a, one thing that I, you might want to comment on that I think is of interest is um, are are owners of multifamily willing to invest in their properties today? In other words, I've heard uh, from some residential sides, you know, like the cost of materials has gone up pretty substantially. Uh, for lumber and other materials. Do you see value-add properties being attracted and are owners willing to invest in their their multifamily assets today? Um, Do they think that's a good move in in today's environment?
1: So I would say some owners, yes. Um, A lot of owners, not so much. Um, When you're getting less rents, um, it doesn't make sense to a lot of owners to take a vacant unit and to invest a lot of money. In to getting maybe 70% of the rent that they were getting before. Um, some owners aren't willing to invest anything, thus they become sellers. Um, I have had some people sell for that reason, basically that you know they were they were 30% bacon. In one case, 70% bacon. didn't want to Civic Heights beautiful building trophy building, but didn't want to invest the money anymore into San Francisco residential multi-residential real estate basically sold for that reason. Well, the buyer that bought it, though, does want to invest in, in, in improve San Francisco real estate because he's looking at the long-term and he sees the value in improving the property, getting whatever rents he can get today, but getting quality tenants, knowing that for him, that he's bought at a value and he's improved something that will that will hold its value in San Francisco. So I would say that that's, that's a real consideration when you're getting not so much rent as you were getting um, to invest heavy dollars because on a renovation in San Francisco you were talking about the cost I mean for a studio it can cost anywhere for 50 from fifty to seventy thousand dollars to rehab a studio that's rehab. wow and yeah and a one bedroom you know is up closer to 80 90 two bedrooms and three bedrooms are up over a hundred thousand dollars again to rehab them so you know landlords are thinking twice about those hard costs if they're not going to get that
0: much rent. Interesting. So uh, that's an interesting perspective. I, I suppose you're right. There's all kinds of investors, right? So some investors may see huge opportunity with 20 or 30 or even 70% vacancy. Others are are uh, taking their money and, and deciding to place it elsewhere. I think one other topic, and we, I think we have just a couple of minutes left, I just want to ask you, is the discussion about payment of rent, right? Early in the pandemic, there was a lot of concern Uh, just about, uh, you know, concern that the, the percentage of rents paid timely would plummet across the country. And, and certainly there's, there's many individuals are in unfortunate situations and government payments have certainly helped those individuals and others as well. But the latest stats that I saw, you know, there, the percentage, uh, from at the end of the month, your people that have paid up was actually just down I want to say it was a point or a point and a half. So it's not, you know, it's, it's a movement but it's not as significant as perhaps was concerned early. Uh, do your do your clients, uh, are they concerned about payment of rent? Is that really problematic at this point as we kind of move into a, a next phase of the pandemic?
1: So I think they're less concerned about payment of rent than they were in March, April, and May um, because they didn't know where this was headed. The interesting thing is, is nationally, I know that the number is 80-something percent of people, you know, uh, uh, rent payments are collected. Uh, San Francisco, where you have occupied units, the, the number is actually higher. So, what happened in San Francisco again is 85,000 people left. You know, most of those were tenants. And so, there were vacancy issues, you know, huge vacancy issues where you had loss of rent. Um, surprisingly, the people that stayed and occupied their units, um, we were at about 95% collection on those tenants. Um, and the tenants that didn't pay or haven't paid, while evictions aren't allowed, there are vehicles for landlords to recover that money after pandemic um, regulations are over with.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I think that your stat, I think I read 93.5% are paid by the end of the month. So it sounds yeah. very consistent. Yeah, it's very consistent across the country. And it's, you know, as I said, it's. Uh, It's important. It's important for investors and it's obviously important for the tenants themselves. Um, At this point, uh, you know, before we can go on and on, Dan, I always enjoy speaking with you. And there's lots to talk about in the multifamily space, Um, you know, using San Francisco as a case study, but equally as applicable across markets uh, across the across North America, frankly. Uh, Rachel, I'm going to go to you to see if there are any questions uh, that you have in the in the um, In the chat, again, if you are going to ask a question, please make sure you identify yourself by name, uh, publication, and location so we know the context of your question. And Rachel, I'll turn it over to you to to see what's uh, in our Q&A queue.
2: Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. And I know there are some questions from the audience, specifically relating to investors. And knowing that the market has taken such a turn, we are seeing different first time investors is it hard for them to get financing right now because you know, they might want to capitalize on the market? Dan McGee, what have you been seeing in San Francisco specifically, um, knowing you had some deals, you know, exciting deals over the past year?
1: So um, I think that's a great question uh, yeah. because we're dealing with that right now. Um, and looking at the buyer side of things and the seller also has to look at this and the seller's broker is who is the buyer and how are they going to buy the property? Um, what we found with very high vacancy rates is that uh, banks may not even be willing to loan or if they are, they're, they won't um, consider vacant apartments rent that, w- that should be forthcoming in the not too distant future when they underwrite the loan. So I would say loans on transactions are at a maximum of 50% loan to value, in many cases 40 or 35 here in San Francisco. Um, the property I sold in Santa Rosa, uh, he was able to get agency financing up there, and I think it was like 90% uh, or 88, 88 percent of, of the uh loan to value of on that property. But here in San Francisco, um banks are, are very leery of that. So when you're looking at buyers, right now the buyers that I see in the market are experienced and sophisticated buyers here in San Francisco. Although some buyers would like to jump in, um, they can only do so if they have a pile of cash that, that they're able to put down. Um, recently, I closed a building uh, on, in Pacific Heights, the one that was 72% vacant. It was a 17 unit apartment building that we sold for $9,940,000. That would have sold for 11, 12 million you know, two years ago, but uh, with 17 units, there were 12 of the units vacant, and so buyers who lined up to buy it couldn't get the financing. The buyer in the end came in was an all-cash buyer, two-week close, no contingencies. That got the seller's attention. Um, in other transactions I've closed, again, the buyer is really only able to get
0: about 50% uh, loan-to-value at, at the at the most. Interesting. That's a, that's actually a great question because, you know, so much of the residential market we hear is driven by low interest rates. Uh, obviously, it benefits people who are borrowing, uh, but there's other factors, as you said, kind of the bank, the lender's outlook on the marketplace as well. That comes into play when you're into investment real estate. Interesting. Uh, Rachel, what else? Uh, what other questions from the audience do we have?
2: So some of the questions about the investors as well were, are they in state, out of state? Um where are we seeing these investors coming from? Are they local to their own markets? Um, and you know, are they first-time investors? I know we were just talking about maybe it might be hard for them to get uh, the financing, but the, I think that's interesting Who who's trying to get in right now.
1: So, yeah, so is I that,
0: would I, say, go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to make one contextual question is that when I look at deals across the country, it seems like most deals, and Dan, this is what I'll ask you to reflect on, most deals are, of uh, the properties that we're selling are kind of regional investors, right? They're people who kind of know the marketplace. But Dan, is that also the case in San Francisco and the Bay Area?
1: Yeah, so I would say that um, most transactions in San Francisco, if not almost all, are local investors of one sort or another. Um, before the pandemic and certainly after the pandemic, you have local family offices or a family a family of investors that have been here for years, own a ton of apartments, who are have been and still are investing in property here. You also have what we call local sponsors, um, investors who know the area well, have a lot of experience, and they have institutional money behind them, like Goldman Sachs, um, Ivanhoe, that sort of thing. And they're, they have, so their partner is from out of the area and doesn't know the area as well as they do, but these, these are, again, local sponsors who are investing in the area and bringing the outside money in. Very rarely do we see somebody, we see people coming in from, uh, like in San Francisco, even southern from Southern California or from other states or even other countries who say they wanna buy San Francisco apartment properties. Um, even before the pandemic though, the problem is is they don't understand the numbers here. The numbers here, don't make sense to people outside of San Francisco when you have three percent, three and a half percent cap rates and they can go somewhere else and buy five and six percent cap rates. They can't figure out why we do it.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point. Dan, just to follow up on that, uh, I know one of your colleagues down in Southern California sold a multifamily property in late last year to Asian investors. Have you seen any trend change in overseas investors and their appetite to acquire real estate in the area? You know, either, either change in countries where it's coming from or just, you know, stop, start.
1: Yeah. So in again, in multifamily in San Francisco, haven't seen haven't seen that. It's talked about a lot. Um, I even when I'll have property that I market, we put it out for everybody that that has the, the uh, financial capability, the experience and the desire to come to San Francisco and buy. Generally, we will get. Um, Asian buyers or from other countries who want to come in and buy. But they, they don't compete well with the San Francisco buyers who know the market extremely well, who will pay up and overpay what, what, what they would pay.
0: Interesting. Okay. Rachel, back to you.
2: Thank you both. We do have a question about uh, multi-year leases, knowing that rents have been favorable to tenants and people are leaving the city, they're coming back, people want, you know, to get the best deal. Um, are landlords amenable to multi-year leases right now? Or are they just saying, you know, one year, any concessions being given out? Um, I think it's an interesting point that you had that, you know, people are spending more money for more space outside the city. So wanted to see what what the thoughts were on multi-year leases.
1: So in San Francisco, um, there are concessions being given, uh, but not necessarily multi-year leases. Um, uh, developers of newer properties that are not subject to rent control, I think in San Francisco the date is, you know, from 19, uh, to San Francisco rent control, we do have statewide rent control now, but um, I think the date is uh, 1978 um, or after is not subject to rent control. So new developments are able to draw tenants in with giving away a month, two months, even three months free rent. Um, In an existing structure, an older type property, which most of San Francisco, you know, most of the properties in San Francisco are older. They were built in the 20s. They were built in the 30s. They were built in the 60s. Um, All of these, these owners aren't able to do that and not get nailed with uh, uh, rent control so what the, because they would average out they would annualize the, the rent payment and then pull it back like if you gave away one free free month they'd take the, the 11 months and divide it by 12 the rent board would and you'd end up paying uh, only able to charge the next year the, the average of the, uh, the 11 months paid on an average of 12 months so they're hit with that. But incentives um, that are given are sometimes they'll allow uh, early key access. So they'll allow tenants to move in, which virtually is the same thing, but um, it doesn't seem like um, that has been that much of a problem. Um, but yeah, those are the kind of incentives that that um, I, I, I just say that mostly existing owners of older buildings, their biggest incentive is to give the apartment at a lower rent because of rent control it kind of inhibits their ability to do those things and also if an owner were to give a long long-term lease um, on the newer buildings then that would um that would uh inhibit them from raising the rents later And i don't think they're going to do that and in san francisco on the older buildings it's not necessary because the rent control protects the tenant. It's like a long-term lease when they step into uh, a new lease. So they basically are protected at those rates, plus uh, stated annual allowable increases. So they are protected anyway, as though they had a long-term lease, not necessary in San Francisco.
0: Super, that's interesting. Whoever asked that question, is kind of a sophisticated question because in office space, obviously you see the longer you lease, the better deal the landlord gets you. And it's one of the reasons that the, Multifamily market right now is, is sort of more dynamic in a way than office, because office leases, even if workers are not there, their leases are 10 and 15 years. So you won't see the impact of some of those changes in renting uh, strategies and tendencies for a while. Um, so interesting discussion. Rachel, back to you.
2: Thank you both for that. Uh, one last question from the audience. What can we expect from Coldwell Banker Commercial in San Francisco, around the world? What any notable deals we can maybe just tease out right now?
0: Uh, notable deals in terms of new listings or, or uh, anything yes. like that? Um, you know, I mean, it, it's very market specific, right? You, know, I think most of our multifamily, as I said earlier, 21% of our sales activity is multifamily. Uh, California, both northern and southern, represent a good chunk of that. Uh, and our activity is, right to date, primarily uh, California, Texas, and Florida. Probably not really surprising. Those are also states that are, um, you know, a, a, either attracting tenants uh, because of the, the pandemic or changes in tenancy because of the pandemic. Um, so there's some trends around there. So, Dan, I don't know if you have any, you know, notable either deals or or you hear of unique properties that might uh, come online because of the current situation?
1: So I would say that, um, I I can't talk about any notable sales coming up per se, but what I will say is, is already, for example, this year I've closed uh, through March four apartment transactions, have three more in contract working on three to four more. And I think oddly, um, even though we're coming out of this pandemic, it seems like there's a pent-up demand. And the I said that there were only a handful of buyers, but that number is growing weekly. Um, as some buyers sitting in the wings that are seeing other buyers get uh, properties at very good values, they're thinking, hey, I want to get some of this before it changes. Um, so I think that in terms of sales volume mm-hmm. over the year, we're going to see a surprising
0: number in San Francisco. Yeah, it's interesting. And also, Dan, if you were to look at new construction, what I've noticed here in Chicago, I just saw an announcement yesterday that a I think it's a Canadian investor is breaking ground on a twenty-four story multifamily building, right? So there's some people that, you know, investors, irrespective of you know short-term conditions, you know, feel bullish on different markets, be it you know new product or existing product around the country. It's, it's interesting. So um, let's just say this. I think it's been a great discussion. I think there's, as I said earlier, there's a lot more we could dig into on multifamily, um, both in the Bay Area and around the country. But, Dan, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate your insights uh, and your years of experience, give you some perspective on the current market. Uh, you know, for, for, First and foremost of which is this is not the recession of 2008 and 2010, which was an economic recession. This is a pandemic-driven recession. So... Just that alone is makes it a very different dynamic today. Uh, But I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Thank you for your time uh, this morning. And I hope you enjoyed our conversation. As I said, this is the first of what we hope will be future chatter conversations about different topics in commercial real estate. Today, we focused on multifamily. Uh, If you have suggestions for areas that you want to talk about, make sure that our team knows Uh, in the meantime, if you have any follow up questions, uh, the names will appear on the screen momentarily for uh, Matt or Rachel. Uh, they'll be happy to uh, to answer any questions, both about multifamily or other topics that of which Coldwell Bank or Commercial can share expertise. Uh, and in the meantime, we hope you enjoyed the conversation, and we look forward to uh, seeing you in another CBC Chatter uh, in the near future. Thanks very much.